good morning. This morning, continuing 1 Corinthians chapter 9, been in this section for a while, and today we're on verses 19 through 23. Here Paul uh, has these famous statements about becoming all things to all people, and we got to get that in context, make sure we understand it, so that we don't come to some wrong conclusions. Last week I mentioned that there are a lot of repeated terms in this section that suggested that you look at that ahead of time and think about why they're there and why they're repeated. So let's begin with prayer and then we'll dig into the text. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for having given us your word, given us the truth, given us the gospel, and given us the opportunity to share it with others. May we learn what you've said act in a way that would be honoring to you and show love to all by sharing the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done in Jesus' name. Amen. So we go to 1 Corinthians 9, 19. As I've mentioned before, I have reasons for which Bible translation I choose based on the studying the text ahead of time, and there are certain things that I think should be Clear And in this case, I chose the Lexham English Bible, which comes from Logo Software, for a couple of reasons. One of which, when it says in order that, I like to always translate it in order that so I know that it's a purpose clause and it's the same word, which I'll talk about as we're here. It's on, in fact, it's on the slide, Hina, in order that. It's purpose clause. It's not wrong if your Bible says so that or whatever. But it's a purpose. Let's see what it is. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. For although I am free from all people, I have enslaved myself to all in order that I may gain more. So already here in this first verse of our section, several terms are uh, introduced, which will be found throughout these verses. Gain is one of them. And uh, I put it out there and transliterated into English, Curdino, and it's used five times. Often in the Gospels, that word is used to win, to win or to gain. And I'll talk about that. So what's the point here? For although I am free from all, let's think about the context. In the greater context, Paul's been talking about 1 Corinthians 9, the reason he works a trade tent making in order to provide for his own needs because he did not want to get involved with the typical arrangements that were common in that world. Wealthy patrons would often um, sponsor someone with the implication that since I'm your sponsor and I'm making you important, then you owe me something. And you need to do things my way. I've talked about that before. So when Paul says he's free from all, he's referring back to his practice of working and paying for his own needs. And therefore, no one can say, hey, I paid your bills. Now, here's what I expect. And I've talked about that in, in previous sermons. But in an ironic twist of the words, uh, not twisting, but... Uh, using words in two different ways to get an emphasis and an ironic impact. 
though he's free from all, he's enslaved himself to all. So how can you be free and enslaved at the same time? Well, it's not a contradiction because it's not in the same relationship. He's free from undue influence, influence buying, the fear of man that would uh, keep him from preaching what he knows needs to be preached. But he's enslaved in a sense of being under an obligation to preach the truth to all, to serve in the body of Christ as Christ's slave, and therefore his actions are not just whatever he feels like, they're focused on serving the Lord himself, the gospel, and the people who have believed the gospel. So in, in this irony, Paul is telling us being a slave made him free because he's not a slave to the influence peddlers, but to the gospel and to the Lord. He's a doulos, a bondservant of the Lord. The term free is the very first word in the Greek sentence, and uh, that's a way of making it emphatic. Free. Paul is free. And he's free in a sense of gospel liberty and preaching the same message without ulterior motives to all people. So, therefore, there's no influential person in Corinth that is sponsoring him and suggesting that he needed to do things a certain way. I have a statement I put in my notes I wanted to read to you. Paul avoided financial arrangements which would have compromised his freedom to freely preach Christ crucified. He was enslaved as a servant of Christ for the gospel to all people whatever their status. By removing needless offenses, he ensured that only the truth of the gospel itself would be a cause of stumbling, not the social arrangements of the Jewish or Roman societies. See, the way the Romans tend to look at things where you're either slave or free, the way the Jews tended to look at things were you're either Jew or Gentile. But in this comprehensive statement about being free, Paul is saying that he's a slave to all in the sense of a servant of Christ, whatever their worldly status would be or however the world would look at them or judge them. So the themes are set. All is a, an important term here. Uh, and that's found... Uh, five times, and so we have purpose, and we have some universal statements. So let's go to verse 20. Verse 20, 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, I have become like a Jew to the Jews in order that I may gain the Jews. To those under the law, I became as under the law, parenthetically, although I myself if not under the law, end of the parenthesis, in order that I may gain those under the law. This is a very famous statement, often discussed in uh, 
theological circles, and I think most people have heard this, whoever has been uh, under Bible teaching, and so we want to make sure that we understand correctly what he's talking about. I noticed when I was doing the work from, thankfully I have some excellent uh, scholarly work on 1 Corinthians that has been very helpful to me, but I noticed that the scholars all pointed out the same incident, which was in Acts 21. Soon in Sunday school, we'll get to Acts 21. I shouldn't use soon, should I? I tend to go slowly through Sunday school. But we'll get there. But in Acts 21, some of the things Paul does, people wonder about. What is this? He took a vow. In fact, why don't you turn there with me? Acts 21, 20. But the scholars point out it's something like this that he's talking about. How does he become like a Jew to the Jews? When, in, the, in fact, there's an irony in that. Paul is Jewish. But we know he also has Roman citizenship. He is Jewish. What is he talking about? Let's read this section, Acts 21. We'll start with verse 20. Uh, 20. When Paul gave his report about how the gospel had found progress amongst the Gentiles, all of this leading to Jerusalem. They previously had the Jerusalem Council. He had taken up an offering. He was bound to go to Jerusalem. He had the Agabus incident. This is going to go badly for you. They're going to arrest you. And he was bound he was going to go there. And so now he's getting there, Acts chapter 21. And he gave a report. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling him not to circumcise their children, nor walk according to the customs. Now, I'll stop right there. You look there at verse 21. We'll get to this in Sunday school. I'm in, at the end of Acts 20 right now. This was a big deal. This is really the thing that was the biggest threat to the church at the time. They'd had the, the Jerusalem Council. They determined they were not going to require certain things of the Gentiles. But how is the gospel going to produce what we know from Ephesians will be the one new man made up of Jew and Gentile, not negating the future promises to Israel, when the headquarters tended to be in Jerusalem. But that's not how it was going to be. If you read Luke Acts as the two-volume work that it is, there's a lot in Luke Acts pointing to judgment coming to Jerusalem. It's not narrated in Acts. It happens, I think Acts was written before 70 AD, but also not negating the future promises to Israel. So the tendency is we'll have a Jewish church with Jewish law right here in Jerusalem as the headquarters, but it wasn't going to be that way. But Paul didn't want to make it worse. He didn't want to create a divide. He wanted to become all things for the sake of the gospel and not see the thing blow up right then and there. And so there was this dispute. And so in order to stave off any accusations that Paul is prejudiced against the 
customs of the Jews, he does some things that we might wonder about, okay? So he gets there. James and the others tell him that there are those zealous for the law, but who are believers. Acts 21:22. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And all who will know, and all will know that there's nothing to the things they have been told about you, but that you yourself walk orderly keeping the law. Paul willingly did, does this. Now you would think, well, he went that far to prove that he's not prejudiced. He's become all things to all men. But what happens in Acts, if you've read that section? They still blow everything up. And Paul is under duress. He's attacked. He's accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple. And this starts the rest of Acts, where there are these appeals to civil authorities. That's a long way of explaining how Paul lived this out. The offense was not uh, taken by the Gentiles. It was taken by the Jews who still weren't satisfied. So it's on them to be uh, reacting like that. But he continued to preach the gospel to all. Now, the why here matters. So it doesn't, it isn't that we need to compromise with the sinners, please the world, please everybody around us who want us to do what they think we should do so that they'll become Christian. The thing that causes people to become Christian is the grace of God through the gospel. What Paul is seeking to do is to not be enslaved by influence peddlers or buyers and to not be distracted to preach the clear gospel message to all and to remove needless offense. So when it talks about under the law would be those who are keeping the law of Moses and those who are not would be those who are Greek or not following those customs. The why matters. The why matters. Gain, Cardino, or win, is used here. Let me cite, you don't have to turn to this, but jot it down. Mark 8, 36. To win or to gain is the point of this. Mark 8, 36. For what does it profit a man to gain, there's our word, the whole world and forfeit his soul. Very uh, incisive and pointed passage. The whole world looks like it has a lot to offer. Satan offered it in one of the temptations. But what Paul wants to gain are people who would believe the gospel and be added to the body of Christ. That's his focus. Nothing's more important than removing the offenses, removing anything that would obscure the truth, any possible bad motives, and to have a clear, forthright gospel that, with no strings attached, points people to the finished work of Christ, forgiveness of sins, redemption, 
atonement, and eternal hope. That's what matters. The process of doing that is not easy. And it's not always that clear what's the best thing. The incident in Jerusalem, we'll have some interesting discussions in Sunday school when we get to that section. But I think it goes to show that Paul went further than he normally would, and they still lied about him and tried to blow the whole thing up because he didn't want this to divide the church into a Jewish church and a Gentile church, but that there would be one new man. Let's go to verse 21. He says, and again, further explanation of this. To those outside the law, I became as outside the law. Although I'm not outside the law of God, but subject to the law of Christ. In order that, another purpose statement, I may gain, there's our word again, those outside the law. Now this needs some clarification. When you first look at this, uh, in the Greek, it seems a little odd, I got to tell you. Because the word, I have it here transliterated on the slide, Anomos would be lawless. Well, how could Paul become lawless? That doesn't sound right, does it? But the context will help us understand the usage. It's not just that you find out what the Greek word is, therefore we know what it means wherever we might find it. Context is always very, very important. So he's not lawless like those who are lawless that are rebuked in the Bible, but he's outside the mosaic stipulations of the Levitical rules and laws. But he's under the law of Christ, another interesting term. I'm going to try to unpack that a little bit. I did a lot of work the last couple of weeks because these aren't the easiest passages in the Bible. But uh, Paul's not lawless, but he isn't under Moses. Let's explain that. Let me give you some examples of the word here translated outside the law, which could be translated lawless, where it in fact means lawless. 1 Timothy 1.9. 1 Timothy 1.9. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless, there's our word, and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who killed their fathers or mothers, for murderers. So the law is uh, to show law, the lawless their wicked ways and that they need a Savior. And it's used that way many times. It's the same word, but here it's a different context. Acts 2.23, it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preaching the gospel to those who were gathered there. As the church was born on the day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit poured out. Peter cites many scriptures, and he wasn't afraid to indict the sinfulness of the sinners. The gospel begins with 
not only the person and work of Christ, which is central, part of it, we need to know what our need is. We've offended God. We're under his wrath. And only the sinless Savior can bear the cost and penalty of our sins so that we might be saved. So Peter pointed that out, the lawless men, those who wouldn't listen to Christ. In 2, Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, Antichrist is called the lawless one. So how is Paul saying um, to those outside the law became as lawless? Well, in that context, he means not directly under the Mosaic Covenant, a part of the New Covenant. It's, let me, Eric and I have talked about this a lot. A passage you need to know is Deuteronomy 18.15. There's a lot of references to this in the New Testament, sometimes just allusions. I believe there's an allusion to Deuteronomy 18.15, for example, on the Mount of Transfiguration, where the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. What does it mean, listen to him? What's the allusion? Well, let me read it, Deuteronomy 18.15. This is from Moses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him you will listen. This is identifying Jesus Christ, as, as he's alluded, this is alluded to later, as the one that God would raise up that would be the greater Moses. And this is predicted in Deuteronomy, spoken from the Mount of Transfiguration. Listen to him. And Jesus speaks that way. You have heard, I say to you. You have heard, I say to you. Not contradicting so much as appropriating, uh, affirming, applying, and speaking what's binding for Christians. We're not lawless in the sense that we don't know any moral code. We don't know what God has said. We don't know what the difference is between good and evil. No, it's not like that. We have, we're under Christ. Therefore, he says he's under the law of Christ, the greater Moses who speaks for God. Here's a statement I wrote to make sure I got this the way I want to say it. So I put it in my notes. I'll read it to you. Paul is not antinomian. I guess that's kind of a dub, double negative, thinking about it. But he's, he's not antinomian. Antinomian being against the law. This is likely a play on words where Paul is outside the law, not under, not under Jewish law, but under obligation to serve Christ lawfully as under the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 26, 27. Here's what it says. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my rules. The Holy Spirit indwells those who believe under the new covenant. And we have desires to serve God and honor God in ways that we didn't have before. In our sinful rebellion, we didn't care what God thought about us. We 
Maybe they didn't even believe there was a God. If there was, what does he care about me? Or we started thinking, I'm, you know, there's so many people worse than me. Why should I worry about what's wrong with me? At least I'm better than Hitler. Got that going for me. And so we tend to not think seriously about the fact that we fail God and the wages of sin is death. There's a promise under the new old covenant that there would be a giving of the Spirit, a new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31, a new heart, a new mind. All of these things are involved, I believe, in being subject to the law of Christ. He empowers us, changes us, and so we have a desire to please him. We do have revealed laws and rules under the new covenant, but the grace to live that way. It says in Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And one more statement I have on my notes. Our relationship with God in Christ does involve important moral obligations which guide our attitudes and conduct. The Corinthians failed in that regard in numerous ways. Remember the context? Some of the Corinthians were claiming the right to go to the pagan temples, eat the pagan food where the pagans are worshipped, and claim that as their liberty and wondered why the weaker Christians didn't just come with them. Well, later in the next chapter, Paul's going to say the Gentiles are worshipping demons. Your table fellowship at the pagan festivals is fellowship with demons. This isn't your liberty to go there. He hasn't got to that point yet. But the law of love, the law of Christ, would be to take action that would not harm your brother and to avoid the pagan worship festivals and the food they're consuming there in that kind of a context. Let's go to verse 22. 1 Corinthians 9, 22. Paul elaborates more about what he means here and makes some more purpose statements. To the weak I became weak in order that I may gain the weak. I have become all things to all people in order that by all means, I may save some. Now, one of the things I put in, in the notes on the slide is that you see a parallel construction, gain the weak, save some. I believe that salvation is what's in view here. And I've read uh, several scholars on this and a lot of discussion about it. And one brother made a good point. This doesn't exclude gaining wayward Christians. And he made the point, this was Paul Gardner that I'm, I'm alluding to, that in Matthew 18, it talks about gaining the brother. If you go to him, remember, with witnesses, hoping to gain your brother. So this would be both, I think both are true, gain those outside of Christ for salvation by removing offenses, and gaining people. There's certainly people in Corinth. They got some big 
He has some big problems. It's a real mess there. There's people who need to be gained to see if they'll be willing to walk soundly in the, in the faith and not claim liberties that God did not give them. So becoming weak to the weak probably, in this context, means not accepting the patronage as was the typical arrangement in the Roman world. If you're important, somebody wealthy will be your patron and pay your fees, whether you're a philosopher or whoever you might be, and that proves you you're worthy of it. Look at so-and-so is your patron. He's taking care of you. He sees you have something to offer. Paul refused that because he could see that that was going to lead to compromise, at least in Corinth. He would rather be weak and work with people making tents, Quilla and Priscilla, and make sure that he can be all things to all people, and therefore gain the weak. The strong did what they thought they had a right to do. Paul doesn't believe that because they don't care what happens to the other brothers and sisters. In their world, in Corinth and in the Roman Empire, being weak was not a desirable trait. Sometimes I become very concerned when I watch the television Christianity, and you see people portraying themselves as winners. Yes, yes, come to our church and you'll be a winner. And I wonder... If I did, that doesn't sound like what Paul's talking about here. But at certain parts, times of my life, when I was sick and barely surviving, I wonder if they would just think me a loser because I'm so weak. Paul doesn't say he becomes strong so they can win the strong. The strong aren't that impressed by Paul no matter what he does. He says becomes as weak to gain the weak. <clears throat> so this term here is broader than just financial weakness or physical weakness, but it, it could mean, uh, let me just have a, I, I put something in my notes I wanted to share with you. Here the term is broader. It includes those who are typically despised, lacking influence, patronage, religious status, financial power, social standing, or other cultural matters that would make them elite compared to others. Being weak was not desirable. We're going to put up a full-page full page newspaper ad, The Church of the Week, W-E-A-K. <laughs> you don't see that. Look at our strengths. Paul's uh, critics in Corinth would later use the term to describe him. Jot this one down uh, to save a little time. I'll just read it to you. Jot it down, though. 2 Corinthians 10.10. He cites his critics. 2 Corinthians 10.10. For they say, quote, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. All right, so he's a weakling with not very good speech. 
just the preacher we wanted to hire. But that's what his critics were saying. But then, of course, he says, uh, what's strong about him, by the way, was the message of Christ crucified. And we'll look at it in application. We'll go back to the first chapter about the weak things of God. Fact is, Christ crucified is seen as offensive and weakness. But Christ crucified is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. And God is never obligated to follow the world's standards to make people want to listen to him. He sent his son into humble surroundings, born of a virgin, in fulfillment of prophecy to live a sinless life. In the church, we need to bear one another's burdens. I have one more statement. Becoming all things does not imply adopting sinful practices or altering the gospel message. Furthermore, when the culture favors the strong, desirable, or popular, the church is not to adopt these values to gain anyone. Paul never says become strong to the strong. That's a redundancy. I mentioned that before. These are not really moral categories, by the way. In a certain context, I believe all of us have weaknesses and strengths. And if someone is strong in something, all glory is given to God, whatever talent he gives us so that we might serve one another. Maybe we're weak in some other things. We'll get later, as we go through 1 Corinthians, we'll get to chapter 12, where we see how we need one another, and God gives gifts. But Paul becomes weak, that he may gain the weak. Let's go to one more verse before we go to our applications. 1 Corinthians 9, 23. Paul says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel in order that, there's our purpose statement again, I may become a participant with it. So now if you look at repeated terms, all in order that, I may gain. Here's another one, become. It's used, I think, four times. And then he uses this word participant, which is a Greek word used only four times in the New Testament. And it's this word uh, for, we, we most people know koinonia, fellowship or sharers, koinonia. So it's the word, that word for koinonia or koinonos, which would be the adjective, with a prefix, sug koinonos, four times. And it would be share with or participant. Paul is a share in the gospel fellowship with all Christians in Corinth, including the weak. And the whole point of this section is that the practices and attitudes that have arisen in Corinth are going to shoot this down. We're going to thwart this whole point of gospel fellowship. Some bold, strong people going into the pagan temples, dining with the pagans, eating the sacrifices offered to the false gods, and saying, I'm strong, what's wrong with you weaklings? It's just food. We know that there's only God, no, one God, 
these are these aren't real gods anyhow it's no big deal let's have our festival and that's harming people and in other contexts they're claiming liberties of things that aren't liberty and so this mess requires Paul to make this strong statement and write letters back and forth but his purpose is for the sake of the gospel and this sharing together with the participant in this particular word in the Greek is very important. And it's the seventh purpose clause in this little section. And uh, let me give you a couple of verses where that word is used. Romans eleven seventeen. This has to do with eschatology in a sense. Romans eleven seventeen. Now, some of the branches were broken off, and you, although you were a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and became a sharer. There's our word. There's our word. That adjective that has a prefix to koinonos or koinonia, different form of it, of the root of the olive tree's riches, reminding Gentiles that they were grafted in to the Jewish olive tree are our shares with the promises and that there are still future promises for ethnic national Israel. And by the way, if you're watching the news, you can see this play out before our eyes. The hatred of Israel and the anti-Semitism has existed all the way back into Genesis. And it's there because the world hates the promises of God. And God made a promise. And he will keep his promise. Right now, Israel is not right with God. But just the promise, just the reality of the promise infuriates and causes unbelievable hatred. Hatred that's beyond reason. And so it's been throughout history with all the pogroms. But here, we get an idea of what the word is like, share of the root. In Revelation 1.9, John says this, John, your brother and co-sharer, there's our word, in the affliction and kingdom and steadfastness in Jesus. He was on Patmos. So rather than compromise with the pagan culture, Paul practices being a co-participant, a sharer, having common fellowship in the gospel with all who will believe. And to do so, to continue to proclaim the gospel and to lay aside needless offenses. This is so central, so essential. It takes a, a work of grace for anyone, any of us, to live this way, but I believe God has such grace. Because it will all be clear in eternity that what was important was the gospel and how we treated people and how we treat one another and how we view one another and not get into worldly uh, 
identification about who's important. I have some haves. As in my case, if I don't get to all of them, I don't get too worried about that. I want to make sure I get the main text laid out there, but we'll see how we do. Uh, implications and applications. The world despises the weak, the very people God chooses and uses. And if you weren't despised before by that much, if you do come to the Lord, you will be. There's a hatred for anyone who's been blessed by God in any means, including forgiveness of sins. Secondly, fellowship in the gospel is a great honor and more valuable than anything the world offers. Fellowship in the gospel. That is eternal. Let's go to do a little a review of something covered a couple of years ago when I was in chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, 26b through 28. Now Paul here, at the beginning of the epistle, chapter 1, wanted them to notice who the called were. That is, those who actually responded and are part of the family of God. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and to despise God has chosen. The things that are not so that, here's another one of those purpose clauses, hina, so that he may nullify the things that are. And that's an important word, too. I preached on that. I was on this section, abolish, or uh, it's a strong word. Nullify the things that are so that we don't boast before God. So just looking at who shows up in a gospel fellowship Trusting Christ in the gospel, Paul says, gives us a clue about God's working. It isn't all the people who are um, multi-billionaires and the top politicians in the state, whoever we might think are important or influential. It's ordinary people with ordinary lives doing different things, sometimes things that people notice and are significant in their world, and sometimes just very simple things. It doesn't matter, because our status isn't determined by what we did in the world. It's who we are in Christ. And the thing that's most important in this First Corinthians that we're studying is that we honor one another and love one another and not put a stumbling block in front of anyone and as we honor God and Christ and serve him. I have a point here, and I want to preach the gospel to you, make sure I didn't miss any parts of it here. Uh, if we crave the honor and status of the world and thereby avoid the offense of the crucified Jewish Messiah, we'll be shamed in the day of judgment. If we believe in Christ, 
the chosen and precious cornerstone, the world will shame us, but we will never be put to shame for all eternity. There's plenty of shame to be gained by serving Christ, but it's only temporary. But by honoring God, serving him, we have eternal honor that awaits us. And yes, it's good to think about heaven and sing about heaven. I, uh, I appreciate uh, our worship as we think about the things of God and our salvation. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ, God the creator, eternal God, God the Son, coexistent from all eternity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Son, through whom God created all things, according to John chapter 1, who was predicted in the Old Testament scriptures, born of a virgin, literally what's said about him is true. In the Gospel of Matthew, again and again, it says, in order that it may be fulfilled, it is written. This happened. It is written. This happened. It is written in order that it might be fulfilled. And specific prophecies happened. Eric's been talking about that. And I thank you for doing so. And this proves that he is indeed the promised Messiah. He predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. His death on the cross is foreshadowed by many things in the Old Testament. And not to mention... Genesis 22 with Isaac, many other places. His shedding of his own blood, the perfect Lamb of God, sufficient to pay for all sins for those who believe. And he averts God's wrath against our sin. We trusted his finished work. He predicted his own resurrection and was raised from the dead in front of many witnesses. Witnesses are important. We're not asking you to take a blind leap of faith, but to believe cold, sober truth. He appeared to 500 such witnesses, ascended into heaven bodily, and will be coming again to bring judgment, to come for his own and to bring judgment on those who hate him. Today, we need to know, I told you who he is and what he did, why we need him. We're abiding under wrath if we don't have him. And what does he expect? That we repent and believe the gospel. There's, there's two different phrases used in Luke Acts. One is turn, like turn from and turn to. And the other, repent which uh, superficially means change your mind, but it implies changing more than that. What you believe, who you live for. Repent and believe the gospel. <laughs> turn from living for self-sin in the world and turn to Christ who died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust today, believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. That's where we may gain shame for being a Christian, but we've got eternal honor awaiting as part of God's family. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Got some time here. I wanted to 
give a little preview of where this goes in this next book of Corinthians. Their disputes with Paul continued on. And uh, they were enamored by the super apostles, the hyper-spiritual, in the Greek, the pneumatikoi, the spiritual ones. But there's sure a lot of spiritual ones today in there. They have big meetings and make big claims. The, the pneumatikoi, the hyper-spiritual, who are better than us ordinary pathetic Christians, they are advertising their wares everywhere. I wonder if they ever read First Corinthians. Who knows? Just parts of it, I think. But this is about his thorn in the flesh. We, uh, Jessica and I did a podcast about this. Uh, but let me go to this verse, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. This is what happened when Paul asked for the thorn to be removed, whatever it was. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast uh, will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So in this sense, weakness, which is a theme in the verses we're saying today, comes up again. Paul's weaknesses, whatever they were, were, were fuel for the fire of the critics who tell him, we're saying, you're unimpressive, you're contemptible, we don't like you, we've got better speakers, we have super apostles, look at you, what a mess. Paul talks about his weaknesses. But notice here it says that the power of Christ may rest upon me. There's a word in the Greek there that's interesting. The word rest is actually to dwell, tent, or encamp. Dwell, uh, uh, let me make sure I pronounce it right. Episkenao, episkenao, to, to dwell, as in a tent. Dr. Siegfried says he wants the power of Christ to encamp upon him, that is to dwell as in a tent upon him. Earlier in the letter, he used the image of a tent, drawn again, no doubt, from Israel's story. So here's Israel in the Old Testament, in the wilderness wandering, coming out through the Red Sea. God split the sea, brought them out, and they camped. They camped amongst them and dwelt amongst them. And they were, they had no country, they had promises, and they had many battles, and they had their own failures, but they encamped. So here Paul is referring to the transitory nature of his person, and despite the fact that the tent, the earthly dwelling, is rather torn up, the power of Christ rests upon him. Maybe many of us are going through difficulties and battles. How many have problems with, with uh, children or grandchildren or weaknesses or difficulties? And this is not unusual for the Christian. I will say this. We need one another. We need to pray for one another, care for one another. Don't think the world is all of a sudden going to love you. It doesn't. 
So let's go to that last verse. I don't have a lot of time, but let me share it with you quickly. Philippians 1, uh, 5 through 6 and 7b. I chose this because it was one of the other four times that that word sharers, so koinonos, is used. And it actually also uses the word for koinonia as a, in the first part of it. Let me read it. Philippians 1, 5 and 6. Because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, convinced of the same thing, that the one who began a good work in you will finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. And I left some out for space. All of you are sharers, there's our word, sharers of grace with me. This is one important identity of the church. It's amazing how difficult it is to define the church nowadays. But here's one key thing. The church, not talking about just a local entity, but the fellowship, what church is, the church is comprised of sharers of grace. Sharers of grace. With the root word there where we get our word koinonia, or fellowship. Shares together the grace of God that makes us different from the world, that makes us similar to one another, though we're diverse. And that this is the, the, the essential shares of grace because that doesn't go away. When Paul wrote Philippians, he was in jail. How could he be shares of grace? For those in Philippi who are part of the church when he's off in jail. But that sharing of grace doesn't go away. It isn't separated through circumstances. And it will continue in eternity. So I, I put in my notes here, Paul is in prison yet still shares a common life with this beloved church which came about through his earlier ministry in Philippi. And, dear ones, I, I thank God for you. And there's no doubt, there's no doubt that God's grace is at work when people suffer, when horrible needs come upon people that we didn't know or, or could have expected, including our own daughter. I just amazed how people care and pray and give and would do anything for one another. I thank God for that. That's his mercy. That's his grace. And uh, I hope that in all of this, we can just really get a sound definition of the church, not just this group. But what is the church? And what does it look like? One definition is sharers of grace because of what God did. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to gather together to look at these glorious things in your word that have been revealed as we are those who are living in this age. And Lord, maybe today someone will hear this and believe upon you for salvation. Pray that that would happen.
Thank you, Lord, for all you've done for us and help us to walk kindly and graciously with one another as we contemplate your many promises. We do pray for Pastor Eric as you bring him back to health. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.